Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. So, what a poignant little video. Uh, And there may be some things that you disagree with in it. There may be some things that you profoundly or decidedly agree with it. But it's a video that's wrestling with this big question. Uh, What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? This was the last question in, or the, the fifth question in our series that we've been walking through. What is the meaning of life? And you may have all sorts of different answers. You may feel some of what this philosopher Alan Watts outlined there. This, this sense of, well, I thought I knew at one point. But then I became a little more undecided as I went through my different career tracks. Maybe you got to a certain point at a certain age and said, wow, I, was that really it? But, but this wrestling is something that people have done for a long time. And, and if we're honest, at times, our answer for what is the meaning, what is the purpose, what is the end of life, some of our answers have been rather ridiculous. This was a song by a band called Hardfi some years ago. Their song was called Living for the Weekend. And it said, working all the time, work is such a bind, got some money to spend, living for the weekend. When it gets too much, I live for the rush, got some money to spend, living for the weekend. Maybe there's this sense in us that we, we have five days to get through. They're called work days, weekdays, and we get to the weekend and then life feels better, feels like it should be. Maybe this would sum up some of our philosophy. Better days are coming. They are called Saturday and Sunday. I actually have this mug that I drink from every Sunday morning habitually. It says this, I really need a day between Saturday and Sunday. And I think every pastor in the country should have this mug. Just sitting there, you have that moment, you're like, ah, I just wish there was a day. I wish, you know, I could have Could have worked on my lawn or something like that. Um, uh, How about this one? Maybe it's not the weekend. Maybe it's life would be better if we had six months vacation but got to take it twice a year. Maybe it's just if all life were vacation, we'd we'd be fine, we'd be happy. I have some friends that I grew up with that would say that they lived for their week in Spain every year. They would talk about it for six or seven weeks before they left with excitement, with joy. For about a week afterwards, the shine was still there and the tan was still there and they would talk about it for a couple more weeks. But that was the significant moment on their calendar. They were quite honestly living for one week, 51 weeks of the year. Maybe there's other stuff that you could identify if you'd search back in some of your history, some other stuff that you would say, I lived for my education. I lived to get good grades. Maybe I lived for success in school. Maybe I lived for my college degree. Maybe you've lived for promotion. Maybe you've lived for some kind of achievement that you could put on your wall and say, man, I have really arrived at this point. Maybe you've lived to raise kids. Now, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, that was the predominant aspect of why we perceived we were here. People were told you're here to have kids, to keep your family line going. There's this good thing, and we celebrate new birth. That's a a wonderful, exciting thing. And yet, is it the whole purpose of life? Is marriage finding the right partner? Is that the sole purpose of life? Is buying a bigger house the the main purpose of life? We wrestled with some of these questions on the surface a few weeks ago when we asked the question, why why does God hate me? 
And what we found as we looked at Google searches and the algorithm around that, what we found is that a lot of the time those questions were linked to a sense of dissatisfaction. I don't feel like life is all it could have been. I feel like I was promised something and I got there and it was a hoax, just like Alan Watts outlined. I'd like to push a little bit further into that question with this idea of what is the meaning of life this week. And I'd love to start with a statement that Jesus made. And what we're going to do is, is for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, we're going to pull back further and further. So we're going to start very focused in on John chapter 10, verse 10. If you have a text you want to open to, if you have an iPhone that you want to pull out and pull up on screen, you are free to do that. We're going to start here in John chapter 10, verse 10. But then we're going to sort of zoom backwards. Because here's the truth about those little numbers in the text in front of you. They weren't there to begin with. Someone put them there. And while sometimes they're useful, they give you like an address that you can go to to find the right part of the Bible. In actual fact, sometimes they're actually harmful. Sometimes it means that you pick up a a book like John, this biographer of Jesus' life, and you open it to John chapter 10, and you assume that you can just start at that point with no other context. You can start into a new conversation. And yet sometimes some stuff has been going on for a few chapters before that actually is really important and really informative. So what I would suggest is sometimes when we do that, without being aware of the context, it's like you turn on Netflix, pull up a show and say, I'm going to go to season six, episode three. And I'm just going to jump in and hope that somehow I'll figure it out as I go along. Now, I'm not saying don't ever read the Bible that way. I'm just saying increasingly try and become aware of the fact that there is this whole conversation that's been going on before. So if you like to read the Bible, if that's a fun thing for you, go home and read. Start in John chapter 7 and read all the way to the end of John chapter 10 because that is one conscious stream of thought. There are all of these events, as we'll see, that are completely interrelated, that are deeply informative of each other, and you'll probably learn something new as you do it. Now, we don't have time to do all of John chapter uh, chapter 7 to 10 today, so I I just want to let you know. We're not staying that long. It's Mother's Day. I have to take my wife out and celebrate. I uh, left in the morning in a rush, and so I feel like I'm, I'm letting the side down. I have come that they may have life, And have it to the full. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John chapter 10. Jesus chooses to use this word, parison. It means abundant. Even superfluous. Almost more than you can handle. When Jesus talked about why he had come in this particular place, he said, I have come that the people that follow me may have life and it may be more than they can handle. It may be this big thing that swells up. It may be superfluous. It may be beyond expectations. All of those different synonyms that go with it. It's kind of maybe related to this line in the Westminster Confession. Now, if you're new to church and the word Westminster Confession means nothing to you, don't worry. The Westminster Confession is a list of things that lots of churches believe, and sometimes it's helpful to get to the heart of something. And the Westminster Confession says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I would say there's this interconnection between this idea of abundant, if life is abundant, on some level it should be enjoyable. And my question is this, is that what you and I experience? 
Given the fact that we know that church attendance has a load of people, and maybe that's some of us in this room right now, that would say, I I come because of loyalty, I come because of duty, I come because my family members drag me, I come from all sorts of different reasons. I wonder whether the word enjoy is a stretch. I wonder whether we might say, does the idea of enjoying relationship with God sound a bit far? Do we experience what we would call life that's abundant? Is it more than we can handle? Are we seeing that in our marriages? Are we seeing that in the way that we raise kids? Are we seeing that in our lives in business, in work, employment, all those different things? Are we seeing it in our lives of friendship? In every area, would we say that what we're experiencing is abundant? And would we say in that process we're enjoying life with God? I would guess that for some of us, if we were to look deep inside us and and to try and find some honesty, what we would say is this, there, there are times where that is true. But there are other times, if I'm honest, that, that I just survive life with God. I, I figure it out and he's there when I need him or when I have a list of stuff specifically, I get to go to him and say I need dot, 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 dot. But I don't know if enjoyment is the word that most of us would land on. And yet somewhere Jesus says, no, this is supposed to be abundant. This is supposed to be more than you can handle. And somewhere we're told that we should be glorifying God and enjoying him forever where do we land with some of that stuff so I'd love to wrestle with that recognizing that for so many of us life is hard I read this week that Bill and Melinda Gates were getting divorced and someone said uh, in the report if they can't make it work with 140 billion dollars who can make it work now the truth is I wonder whether those 140 billion dollars made it harder and yet we see that all across the world, all across America, marriages under pressure, parenting under pressure, everyday life under pressure. And I think most of us would say if abundant life was accessible, if it was something that we could experience, that we would jump in on that. And yet we also have just lifted something Jesus said from all of its context. What did he mean when he said that we should be experiencing abundant life? Is it just as simple as that? Or is there a whole lot of stuff in John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, John chapter 10 that might inform us? So, first step, let's take ourselves back a little bit. We've gone, we started in John chapter 10 verse 10. We're going to jump back to the beginning of John chapter 10 and just see what that tells us in terms of the context of what Jesus said. So here we go. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. So Jesus is teaching in what's called parable. If you're familiar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these other biographies of Jesus have tons of parables. John, some people would say, has none, but this is quite a traditional Hebrew marshal or parable, and it very much fits in with the everyday form. So this at least seems like it's a parable. There's characters that come into it, and you can take those characters, and you can usually assign them to somebody else. In this parable, you might see sometimes Jesus is referring to himself as a shepherd, sometimes he's referring to a thief, sometimes he's referring to a wolf, and then he's talking about sheep, which generally is safe to say is the everyday people listening, and maybe some of you guys as well. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has bought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So intriguing here is the difference between Eastern shepherding and Western shepherding. So some of you have seen things like in England, they actually still show sheepdog trials on television. Uh, I don't know if they would get away with that here. It's very old fashioned, very quaint, very English. But in that sort of system, what happens is this. You have sheep that are stupid, that are disobedient, and the shepherd sends out a dog who chases the sheep, sometimes gives them a little nip to tell them where to go. He has a stick that helps guide them, and he's driving them towards a gate. That is not anything like the type of shepherding that Jesus would have experienced and Jesus would have had in his mind as he's outlining what it is for God to be a shepherd. In the Eastern world, the shepherd knew his sheep by name. He would name each one of them and usually that name would have something to do with the way that they looked or the way that they acted. If there was a sheep that was always behind, he would call the sheep lazy. If the sheep had particularly large ears, he would say, here's old big ears coming down the path or whatever sheep walk on. I don't really know. But I do know that there was this personal relationship between a shepherd and a sheep. So when he talks about a sheep knowing, a shepherd knowing the sheep's name, well, that, that means exactly what it says on the tin. It's, it's this idea that a shepherd would go out, his sheep would intermingle with all of the other sheep, and then at the end of the day, he would call the sheep, and the sheep would come out from amongst the others and make his way over to him, and then he would walk along a path and lead them. When Jesus talks about abundant life, it's talking about, he's talking about it in direct relation to a, a relationship, to a relationship with him. He's talking about the idea that it's possible for us to come into relationship with God, that we on some level are like his sheep and that he would long to call to us and have us come towards him. When he talks about abundant life, that's the context that he talks about it in. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has bought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus is unpacking God's idea to be in relationship with each of us. Abundant life, it seems, begins with that decision to walk in relationship with Jesus. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus starts to give this hint that this relationship is possible because he will lay down his life for the sheep. He will go through death and resurrection that each of us might be in relationship with him. This is the central idea behind this abundant life. But there's more context than just that. So we've pulled back to John chapter 10. Now let's go a little bit further because John chapter 10 only exists because of John chapter 9. And John chapter 9 only exists because of John chapter 8. What do I mean by that? A few weeks ago, if you can track back that far, we talked about Jesus turning up at a festival in John chapter 7. He appears at a festival and on the last day he stands up and he says, I have come to give living water. Any who is thirsty, come and get living water from me. He hijacks this religious festival at the highest point of the festival. He says, it's not really about this water. I can give you something that is more lasting, is, is more significant, is deeper. 
he takes over this festival in this incredible moment, just at its high point. And naturally, the religious leaders are very angry about this. He gets into several arguments about them, and then, in the end, has a discussion with them in the temple just about whether he has the authority to act as he does. At the end of the festival, he leaves, and this is where we find John chapter 9. So he's in the middle of an argument with these Pharisees. All of this conversation that we've read so far is directed to this group of religious leaders. And so we read in John chapter 9, we've gone back a chapter. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All of this conversation about sheep and shepherds comes from Jesus healing a blind man. He walks out of a temple, sees a man who is born blind, heals him, and this group of religious leaders are annoyed that he has healed him. Why would you be annoyed about someone bringing sight to someone who was blind? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus heals the man, and the man is dragged in front of these religious leaders. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Just hold that in your minds for a second. That's important. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He, Jesus, put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. You would think that that incredible moment would be the thing that grabbed the Pharisees' attention. This man was blind, and now he sees. What actually grabs their attention is something very different. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now notice what concerns both Jesus' earliest followers and the Pharisees. They're different points, but they're they're definitely interrelated. Let's just go back a second. He went along and he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents? The, the earliest followers of Jesus are very concerned about, is this man to blame? Can we, can we blame him for his lack of sight? Or, or do we have to blame his parents? But we need to blame someone. We need to know that this is somebody's fault. We need to know who failed and this happened. Similar sort of thing with the Pharisees. This guy is not keeping the rules. There's something about the way he's operating that doesn't fit. Why is he doing things that, that, that aren't right? There's a list of rules and their religion, their experience of God is primarily based on how well they are keeping those rules. This guy's not doing it right. It doesn't matter that a guy that was blind can now see to them. It doesn't fit. The rules are not being followed. Jesus, the Pharisees and Jesus' own followers are attempting to count their way towards God. They're attempting to count their way towards God. Now, what do I mean by count their way towards God? To help you understand this, I'm going to tell you a story. A few years ago, my wife and I, it was our anniversary, and we decided to go dancing together. Now, I'm not much of a dancer. I don't dance particularly great, but I dance. What I lack in skill, I make up for in deep passion about dancing (laughs) ostentatiously. My wife may have the skill. She has less of the obnoxious ostentatiousness or whatever but we went tango dancing and it was a wonderful experience what I loved about it was this when we arrived I was told something that brought joy to my soul I was told the man is always in charge in tango you're in charge you 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 just tell her push her where she needs to go and that's how tango works 
we were told awkwardly on our anniversary that we were supposed to split up and dance with other people in the group. And we were like, well, okay, well, we'll go along with it, but it's a little weird. So my wife ended up dancing with a delightful 70-year-old gentleman, and I ended up dancing with the uh, owner's daughter. And, and she said to me, you just have to push me where I need to go. And the gentleman told uh, my wife, if I step on your toes, that's your fault for having your feet where I wanted mine. This is how one-sided, apparently at its heart, tango is. And of course, there was this delight in my soul because here's a confession. I have a counting mind. I know when you failed and I know when I failed. I know when you are in the wrong and I know when I am in the wrong. I know when I feel like God has let me down and I know when I have let him down. I know who is ahead and who is behind. And I think lots of you would say you have similar articulations as well. Maybe it begins with, oh yeah, you didn't do the dishes last night. Oh yeah, but one time years ago, you also did that thing and it just goes on and on. There's this scorekeeping, this counting that seems to be ingrained in lots of us. And so my delight in tango was this. I found a dance that I can win at. And the odds are stacked in my favor. When she's wrong, it's her fault. And when I'm wrong, it's her fault as well. (laughs) This was the joy of my experience. I have found a dance that I can win at, and I love winning at stuff. And I'm always counting. And I say it with humor, but also with sadness. I'm always counting. Counting with God. I'm counting with you. Counting with the people around me. I know who is ahead. And I know who is behind. And it's hard to escape. It's hard to escape. These Pharisees had found a way to try and count their way to God. If they could just keep enough rules that would be okay. If Jesus kept enough rules, then he'd be on their side. There's this whole system in mind. Who's keeping the rules? For the disciples, who's to blame? Is it this man or his parents? Because somebody always has to be to blame, right? Now, what I found interesting was, despite everything I was told about tango, at the end of the night, we got to watch one of the young couples dance. It was the owner's daughter and her fiancé. And suddenly I saw something about tango that I didn't catch at my very broken level. When I watched them dance, who was in charge didn't seem to matter anymore. They weren't counting who was right and who was wrong. They were lost in the experience of the music. They were lost in this process of being together. They were in partnership and it was incredible to watch. The Pharisees, Jesus' followers, are intensely interested in who is counting. And Jesus isn't interested in who's counting or who's in charge or who's losing or who's winning. This is a parable he tells in Matthew's biography of his life. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. A rich king has many servants who owe him money, so he pulls them all in to figure out who needs to repay what. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is a lot of money, millions of dollars in today's terms. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. This man will never be able to dig himself out of this debt. He will be locked in prison forever. His family will end up in slavery until a family can come along and redeem them. So the servant fell on his knees, as you would expect. 
imploring him, have patience with me and I will have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What is the king, the master, suggesting should happen? Is he suggesting that he's going to let the guy go and that over time he will repay the money? He's not suggesting that at all. That would be ridiculous. That would be very bad business, complete foolishness. The man can never earn enough to repay the debt that he owes. He's suggesting, you know that system by which we keep score? You know the ledgers that we have where we write debts down? You know all of the sort of the back history that we have in our personal relationships where we say, this person did this to me? He's suggesting, let's just cancel the whole thing. He's suggesting, let's wipe the whiteboard clean of the scores. Let's erase it. Let's rip it up. Let's start fresh and and never count score again. Is that what the servant thinks that he's doing? But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a smaller amount of money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The same request that he just made of the king. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The king has ripped up the ledger. The king has said, let's not count anymore, but the servant still wants to count. I would suggest that Jesus is operating in this new system. He's saying, let's not worry about counting, but lots of us still want to count, especially with other people, and especially maybe still with God himself. I would suggest what God is suggesting is just stop counting your way to me. It's not about what you have done. It's not about how you have failed. It's not about how you are broken. You are free to come into relationship. If we are not experiencing abundant life in our relationship with God, that thing that Jesus suggested we should be experiencing, I wonder if at its core it's because, well, we're still counting. Am I still okay? Have I failed too many times? Has God given up on me now? We're still counting with other people. This person let me down and now it's my turn to sort of, I I need revenge for this thing, for that thing. We're, We're still people at our heart, I think, that count. I know at times I'm still a person that counts. And Jesus' system seems to work around the idea that we're supposed to be tearing that thing up. When he talks about relationship, the relationship of a sheep and shepherd, he's not very interested in whether the sheep is doing a good job being a sheep. He is simply interested in the sheep's willingness to come to him out of relationship, to hear his voice and to walk into relationship with him. If you are still trying to count your way to God, it will not work. You are invited free of charge on the house, no strings attached. The whole of this passage works around this one Greek word, spaglaknzomi, which is very hard to say especially in front of people. So if you have better Greek pronunciation, feel free to rush the stage and you can pronounce it for us. It means to be moved in the inward parts, to feel compassion. It's this process. There's something in me that says, I'm going to let it go. This, this, This king is merciful. This king is kind. This king is generous for nothing that the servant has done. The servant has done nothing to deserve the books being ripped up. And yet the king says, let's tear them up anyway. Let's just stop counting. Let's let it go. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It is entirely pity, entirely grace 
that leads them down this journey. The Pharisees and Jesus' own followers are attempting to count their way towards God, but Jesus offers the possibility that we can all stop counting with God and with each other. He invites us into the same incredible relationship that it seems that God has with himself. So you may have heard the term Trinity. It may be very confusing to you. It's the idea that God is three and yet also one, that there is Father, Son, and Spirit. God is in this eternal relationship with himself. And look at some of the ways that relationship operates. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it. The Father sends, the Son goes. My Father goes on working and so do I. The Father and the Son work together in partnership the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Each one has his role. Each one plays a part. There is this relationship that isn't based on who is in charge, who is winning, who is losing. It is the relationship that God invites us into and says, this is what relationship can look like. It's far more like a dance than it is a scorekeeping system. So here's my question. We said Jesus isn't counting. If he's not counting, what is he doing? What is he doing in this John chapter 9 passage? He doesn't seem very interested in assigning blame as to why this man is blind. What is his role? If Jesus isn't counting, then what is he doing in this moment? Jesus is healing a man. And this is really interesting if you love like little details like this. The day that he happens to heal this man on is fascinating. As I told you a little while ago, there's this festival that took place in John chapter 7. At the end of it, Jesus goes off to the temple. The day after the festival, he leaves the temple and has this moment where he meets a blind man. This day is called Shemini at Zeret. Shemini at Zerat is significant for one reason. It's the day that Jewish people, historically, would start reading the Bible again. They would go back to Genesis chapter 1 and begin to read from the start. So think about what is happening all over the Jewish world in this moment. Jewish people are picking up a book or hearing a book read, and it talks about creation. Talks about how creation was made good, how creation was made wonderful. Talks about how God made human beings and made them very good. Everything is fine. And then there's a moment where Jesus walks out of the temple and sees a man who is blind. And think about what that means in that context. As he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with a sliver. The Genesis 1 story is about a God who takes dirt and makes human beings from the dirt. He takes mud, spits on it. So, sorry, he takes dirt, spits on it, makes mud, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went, washed, and came home seeing. On a day when Jewish people everywhere would read the original creation story, Jesus walks out of a temple, sees a man who is blind, who is now the antithesis of what creation was made to be. Creation was made good, and he is not experiencing that good creation. And Jesus heals that man on that day. Now think about this. Healing a person who had, been, who had become blind was considered in the Jewish world to be difficult. It took a master healer. It took a great doctor. Healing a person born blind was considered impossible. It required an act of creation. 
on the day that they read Genesis 1 and talked about creation, Jesus walks out of a temple, sees a man who is born blind, and creates new eyes for him. Jesus, in this moment, is partnering with his father in the work of creation. This is what's happening in here. He is creating something new. And then look what he invites us into. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus could quite easily use the word I, and yet he chooses to use the word we. He is partnering with his father in the works of new creation, and I would suggest he invites us to join him in doing the same. Let's go back to that phrase we looked at from this Westminster Confession thing. The, the man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Part of the reason we don't experience that enjoyment, that abundance, is because we're still counting and we're still figuring out if we owe God a debt. We're still playing the old game of rule following. And then the glorifying piece, well, in glorifying God, really, we glorify God by living up to what we were supposed to be in the first place. What, was, what were human beings made to be? Sometimes in the Christian church, what I would suggest is this. We tell everyone that the story begins in, in Genesis chapter 3. There's this story in Genesis chapter 3 about man becoming broken, they become a failure, and they, they need fixing. And for so many of us, that is the start of the story. Man is broken, he needs fixing. And yet the story doesn't start there, does it? The story starts in Genesis chapter 1. Story starts with what you and I were made to be. We're told about this creation. God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kind. And it was so. God makes this creation that's continually expanding, continually growing, continually becoming something new. And then he makes man. So this creation does this thing. It, it does this rabah is the Hebrew word. It, it's going to multiply. The grass is going to keep growing how many of you have already removed weeds from your yard how many of you have already done that for a second time or a third time how many of you expect to get very tired of doing that by the end of the summer season there's this creation that keeps growing keeps expanding and it was always that way so when God makes human beings what we're told is he makes them in his image to do some of the things that he does to partner with him in this creation and he uses these fascinating words subdue and rule he talks about this word kabash which means to tread down a path to bring something into order and then he says that human beings you and I are made to be overseers of this creation the start of our story isn't Genesis chapter 3 with our brokenness the start of our story is this and so when Jesus partners with his father in new creation and then talks about we instead of I what I would suggest is saying is our way of glorifying him is to do the same. This is one of his final words to his followers. Peace be unto you, as my father hath sent me, even so, even so I send you. There's this moment where Jesus says to his earliest followers, go and start doing the same things that I did. Does that mean supernatural healing and things like that? Potentially. But does it mean partnering with his father in new creation? Definitely. How many of you would say this? How many of you would say that some of the way that the church has presented what life looks like has kind of made your work week feel like it, it doesn't really matter? 
There's this story that we often tell people, and it's something like this. You need to decide whether you're made to do church ministry, and then you're supposed to stand up in front of people and talk to people about Jesus, or you're supposed to sit in a church office. And that's for a certain group of people, and that's good. And everybody else, well, you should, you should make money, and you should give some of that money to the church so the church can keep being the church and keep making stuff happen. At times, I would suggest that's what we have ended up telling everybody about how life is supposed to work. And yet, does that make sense when you look at Genesis chapter 1? Whatever you do, whatever role you play, you are invited into partnering with your father in acts of creation. I would suggest that when you read the Bible like this, with this at its core, there is almost nothing that you can do that you can't do well and partnering with God. Now, the same is true that there's almost nothing that you can't do badly and, and can't bring death and destruction to the world, but almost any career choice, almost any path you may take, you can jump in and do that in a way that brings honor and brings partnership with Jesus and his Father. Suddenly, when you read the Bible this way, well, your Monday through Friday, it actually matters. How you operate in the world around you, it actually matters. The business that you run, it actually matters. The kids that you're raising, it actually matters. Your choices actually matter. Sometimes we've told people it's church ministry or nothing else. And everything else has a lower value than that thing. And your job is, yes, just keep giving the money. Just keep making that happen. The truth is there is almost no career that you can't do well and can't bring honor and glory to your father. There's almost no career that you can't operate in as an image bearer of God. This is Frederick Beekner. There are all different kinds of voices calling you to all different kinds of work. And the problem is to find out which is the voice of God rather than the, of society or self-interest. By and large, a good rule for finding out is this. The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work that A, that you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done. The place God, God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Think about the things that you are passionate about. You are called in and made for those Things. And yet sometimes we've been told to follow those deep passions is to move away from anything that God is the center of. And yet it seems that that is exactly what God is at the center of. You can find almost anything you are passionate about to do well, to do nobly, to bring new life to creation. Think about how we pull this all back to John chapter 10 where we started. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. It seems that God's deep sense of what brings meaning to the world is this. He longs to call us into relationship with him. He longs us to, for his, us to hear his voice, to come to know him, to live in that deep abiding relationship. Not to count our way to him, not to figure out who he's winning and losing, but to step confidently into a relationship that he made possible for us. But then it talks about him leading them out as well. That there's this moment of, well, what are you made to do? There is something inside you, gifting, joy, life, some, some way that you are wired. And the invitation of God is to partner with him in this world. Not just to work in a church, not just to go to seminary or any of those things that maybe you've been told are the purpose. 
Whatever you are doing, there is a way to do it well. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they have life and have it to the full. Whatever you do, Monday through Friday, whatever that thing is, whatever that thing that you feel called into is, I would suggest that almost anything you can do it like a thief. And almost any choice you can do like a good shepherd. You can do almost anything badly and almost anything well. The meaning of life is to find relationship with the God who loves you and to partner with him in bringing life to the world and the people around you. If the purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, I think that covers both of those things. You are made for this relationship, but you are made to bring life to those around you. What you do matters. Who you are made to be, it matters. I'm going to invite Jake and the team to come up on stage and lead us in worship. We're going to come to this communion table, which reminds us of that very fact that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, sat with his earliest followers and broke bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. He reminded them that his death meant something for them personally, but that his death also meant something for how the world was going to work in the future. A new thing was happening. A new story was emerging. Jesus didn't just die for us, the individuals. He died to create a new world, a new kingdom. When we drink and eat, we remind ourselves of that fact. Today, I would invite you to remind yourself that you are called to partner with this God in his kingdom. You aren't made to sit on the sidelines. You aren't made to watch others do it. You aren't made to just earn money and share it. Whatever you do, you are called into partnership. The meaning of life is to find relationship with the God who loves you and to partner with him in bringing life to the world and the people around you. Let's take a moment to reflect. In this moment, as you close your eyes, I'd like like to invite you to listen to the voice of that good shepherd. Whether you're here, in person, whether you're at home. Take a moment and listen. The story of John chapter 10 is of a God who loves you, who laid down his life for you, who invites you into relationship, who knows your name, knows your distinct characteristics. He knows how you keep score. He knows the ways you feel like a failure. He knows the things that go back years and decades that you still hold against others, still hold against yourself. He knows the way that scorekeeping has kept you from an abundant life, from enjoying relationship with him. He invites you to tear up the scorecards, to erase the ledger. He invites you to stop the counting system. He invites you to live out your purpose in the world around you. He invites you to celebrate the way he has made you. The deep passion that you have for the world, the deep needs that the world has. He invites you to find a place where those deep needs and deep passions meet. He invites you to partner with him. I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. 
in this moment, maybe it's a long time since you feel God has spoken to you. In this moment, as we approach the table, we're invited to quiet in our hearts. In this moment, you might want to pray, God, if you're there, would you please speak to me? this moment you might feel reminded of someone that you need to forgive and there's maybe a phone call that you need to make or a text you need to send Holy Spirit as we pause would you speak to people in this room and at home as we stop as we're quiet as quiet as our human minds can get Would you speak to us of your love for us? Your longing for relationship with us? Thank you that you made a way where there was no way. And you invite us into relationship. Would you speak to us of purpose? For those of us that have found that we're living for something that just isn't worth living for. Would we find our purpose in you? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.